This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 22nd, 2020. I'm Joel Goldberg. First up this week, our online news editor, David Grimm, joins me to talk about reopening labs. What can scientists do to continue their work safely? Next, we have researcher Joel Podgorski. He talks with host Sarah Crespi about the global threat of arsenic in groundwater. More than 100 million people are at risk of drinking arsenic-contaminated water worldwide. This study aims to point out which places need testing. We now speak with David Grimm, online news editor at Science. His recent article navigates the treacherous waters of researchers returning to their labs and fieldwork amid the coronavirus pandemic. Even for scientists fortunate enough to resume their research, Strange situations await. Greatly reduced lab teams, physical distancing and face masks, and the risk of coronavirus infection, to name a few. Hi, David. Hey, Joel. There's been plenty of talk about how and when researchers might return to their labs, and it seems that now the time has come, for some of them. Could you highlight a few major studies that have now resumed work, in a sense? I think it remains true that most labs, especially labs that are not working on coronavirus, are still closed or only partially open right now. It seems like labs in Europe have opened a little bit earlier. There were some labs that have opened a couple of weeks ago and more are opening now. In my story, I talk about any, everything from research vessels going out in the Gulf of Alaska to study fish populations to archaeologists studying ancient feces. And so obviously none of these have to do with coronavirus, which is why all these studies were shut down. But some of these are gingerly starting to reopen a little bit. How are institutions deciding which labs reopen? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Some places are allowing all labs to reopen, but they have to reopen at very limited capacity. You know, only at 25% capacity, only a couple of people can be in the lab at one time. You know, in other places, universities are prioritizing critical projects. And in that case, um, that, that might be, you know, a postdoc or grad student is only a couple months away from finishing their postdoc or 
their thesis and they just need to do a couple more experiments. And so they're being allowed to come in just to finish those experiments. And some um, of them don't even have supervision right now. Isn't that the case? So one researcher I talked to, Anara Sistiaga, who is at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, she's one of the ones that's studying ancient feces. And she was allowed to go back into her lab by the dean because she was so close to finishing the data that she needed to complete her postdoc. But she can't do that because the restrictions are such that she can't go in by herself. Her project actually requires somebody to supervise her. And so the, both of them can't be there at the same time because of the restrictions imposed by the university. So even though the dean is allowing her to go back, uh, she can't go back because she because she can't do this work by herself. Even in cases where people are allowed to go back, they're not always able to go back. One thing everyone, even those outside of science, are grappling with is that business as usual is no longer a thing. What changes are being implemented in labs and fieldwork that might represent the new normal? Yeah, so the biggest thing is is the physical distancing. So, and that's why the numbers have been so reduced. So you imagine if you have a lab of 20 people where everybody's kind of crowded together on these small lab benches and these tight quarters, that just can't happen right now because of the risk of transmitting coronavirus. And so what you have instead is labs being allowed to have maybe two or three people coming at the same time and everybody's got to be in a separate room or they at least have to be six feet apart. And so that's one of the big things. And also most institutions are requiring employees to wear face masks. So even if you only have a couple of people in the lab, everybody's got to wear a face mask at all times. Those seem to be the standard things that are the same, regardless of the type of laboratory you're talking about. There are differences now because some labs are used to labs that deal with ancient uh, DNA, for example. These people are wearing full protective gear all the time because they don't want to contaminate their samples. So they, they are, they're already very used to wearing masks, whereas maybe physicists and astronomers who don't normally have to wear masks are now being forced to wear those full time, at least when they're in laboratory conditions. A lot of these scientists and institutions are taking that leap to reopen labs and go back to research. How are scientists and institutions preparing for the possibility of labs having to close again? Yeah, that's the really big problem because even as labs kind of gingerly reopen and they're taking all these protective measures to make sure researchers can be there and do their experiments, there's always a chance that things will flare up again. You know, there could be an outbreak of cases in a particular area and then the lab has to close down again or the university has to close down again. That's still something that's being actively sort of considered about how to deal with that. And, and again, different universities and institutions are dealing with that in different ways. So for example, the Swiss Federal Institute of Aquatic Science, they're allowing people to come back to work, but one of the edicts is don't start new projects and don't start any projects that can't be stopped on short notice. And the idea is that you don't want to start a project that's going to take you a year to finish and has to be sort of done continuously if there's a chance your research is going to be shut down again in a month or two. And so they're really trying to prioritize the work that is just finishing up or work that can be done maybe in just a few weeks in case things have to shut down again. In many cases, scientists aren't the only people involved in research. For example, some involves human subjects who have volunteered to participate. How does this complicate lab reopenings? We're not just talking about you researchers pipetting DNA or proteins and things like that on lab benches. A lot of scientists work with human subjects. We spoke to a couple of scientists that work with either older populations that are studying things like a cognitive decline in the elderly or they're studying anxiety in children. And now, especially with these older subjects, these are people that are very high risk for coronavirus. And so how do you convince them to come to the lab to continue to participate in these studies? 
but B, how do you ensure their safety when they are in the lab? And similarly with children, even though children aren't typically at as high of a risk, the parents may be very reluctant to bring their children in to a volunteer type study with so much uncertainty out there. And so especially the scientists that deal with human subjects are facing these huge obstacles in terms of first, how do they get these subjects back into their laboratories and how do they ensure a safe environment for these subjects? Really, we've been focusing on the logistics of this return to labs. What about the human impact, the social impact? Could you describe how the changes to lab work could affect scientists' careers? There's a lot of early career researchers that are at these really critical junctures in a career. You know, they're about to defend their thesis. They're about to finish their postdoc so they can go out on the job market. And if they're not able to finish their experiments or go back to lab, this could really disrupt their career. And a lot of institutions are be talking about things like extending the tenure clock so that early career researchers would have an additional year to make tenure, get their experiments done. For postdocs, maybe creating some sort of bridge position between a postdoc and a professorship type position so they can remain at the university for extra time to finish their work. So there's a lot of different things being considered just because there's been so much upheaval in terms of what's happening in scientific careers, especially with early career scientists. This isn't so much a focus of your article, but I know a major focus of your reportage is how science relates to animals. What complications are facing research that involves animal studies? Well, so, you know, one of the things I reported on early on in the pandemic was that thousands of mice were being euthanized in labs uh, in the U.S. and probably around the world just because animal care facilities had to really think about what animals they could take care of during the pandemic. And if they were going to be reduced staff and people were going to have a hard time getting over to an institution, they just couldn't care for, you know, the hundreds or thousands of mice they, they house. And so a lot of mice were being proactively euthanized. And that was incredibly disruptive to a lot of research projects that depend on these animals. That continues to be an issue because now even when labs start up, now, you know, if they've euthanized half or more of their mice, they've got to build up those colonies again. That can take months or potentially years, especially if these are sort of genetically rare strains they've been breeding. And even if they can do that, we spoke to one researcher in China who the, ma the mice that she works with are at another university. And so the technical, you know, the logistics of her being able to get to that university or that university being able to ship the mice over to her or send them over to her are a lot more complicated right now than they used to be. And so that means even if these animals are technically available, it's a lot harder to work on them than it was just a few months ago. Perhaps a silver lining to the changes could be the elimination of bad habits from the past. What new changes in labs and the scientific community might be beneficial and could be here to stay? Yeah, this is an interesting thing that came out of some of our interviews. People have had to, scientists, everybody has had to, but scientists as well have had to really change the way they, they do the day-to-day -day stuff. And one of the big things has been Zoom, you know, video conferencing. And one of the upshots has been a thesis defense that typically might only have a couple dozen people there in person now all of a sudden has more than 100 people there because A, nobody has anything better to do, but B, it's a lot easier to attend these things remotely. And so there's this idea that maybe this, this video aspect of science, whether it's lab meetings or thesis defenses or even guest speakers coming, making it available on video might get a lot more people coming and more collaboration happening. But also you mentioned bad habits. You know, I talked to a scientist who said he spends his in typical year, he travels 100,000 miles and he seems to be traveling like every week or every couple of weeks to go to various conferences. And not only is that exhausting, but, you know, it's bad for the environment. It's bad for carbon emissions and all this other stuff. And it's a big time suck as well. And so this is the idea that maybe we don't have to travel as much. A lot of stuff we're able to get done remotely 
And would this be better for scientists to not be getting on a plane every couple of weeks to travel across the world for maybe a two-day conference. It's the Zoom age, right? The Zoomification, I'm not, you know, it's happening to everybody, but, uh, you know, especially scientists are really feeling and experience that they can conduct a lot of what they do in a very different way and potentially a way that's better for them and, and better for the environment. We thank David Grimm, online news editor at Science. You can find a link to his article and all of Science's coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Joel Podgorski on modeling the global threat of arsenic in drinking water. Arsenic is famous for its use as a poison. I read a quote online somewhere that said, it's the poison of kings and the king of poisons. But because trace amounts of arsenic can be found in basically all rocks and that arsenic can leach into groundwater, arsenic poisoning can be a threat to many, many people. Joel Podgorski and colleagues write this week in Science about their effort to quantify the arsenic threat using machine learning. Hi, Joel. Hi, Sarah. Your study tries to take this global view on arsenic. You use modeling and sampling to create a global map. But you can directly test for arsenic in water. Is it not common to test for arsenic? Is it something that's difficult to do? It's not the easiest thing to test for. The arsenic that's found in nature is at very small concentrations. It's a relevant amount, but it's hard to detect. In general, it's not tested for, we could say, in most of the world. But there are places where it's known to be an issue, and so it's more regularly tested for. Basically comes down to the amount of resources that mm -hmm. a place has at its disposal. Is arsenic contamination something that people are just starting to realize is happening, or is it becoming a bigger problem for some reason? As some places, Bangladesh being the classic example, went from using more surface water to groundwater, when you stop using surface water, which is easily contaminated by biological sources from cities, people, livestock, irrigation, you know, runoff from fields, and you go to, to groundwater, well, you can still get those problems there. The deeper you go, generally, the, the much cleaner the water is. And so it's a very easy fix to the, the biological problem just by using groundwater. However, if you don't account for, test for some of the other problems that groundwater can, can bring with it, then you could be poisoning yourself in this other way. So the thing is that with surface water, if it's contaminated from microorganisms, you can get basically sick overnight and you know right away what caused it and you can make some changes pretty quickly. With arsenic, you don't get sick overnight. It can kill you in the end, but it takes years to build up the amount in your, your, your body. And the other thing too, if you don't taste it or smell it. Mm. So it's not like it has, an un, it has some unpleasant odor, which would automatically steer you away from it. That's what makes it tricky. Right. What's the safe level of arsenic in drinking water? What's the cutoff? So it used to be 50 micrograms per liter, and now the, the WHO guideline is 10. And some places are looking at five. But in the end, it's not anything that our bodies need. Not like some trace mineral that you, you might need a little bit of, but too much is, is not a good thing. Looking at the health perspective, you also have to consider where else are you getting arsenic. Another big source is through diet and through food. Mm -hmm. And one of the big cases there uh, that's most well-known and affects the most number of people is, is rice. Rice is very effective in taking up arsenic into its grains. And then when we consume that, that can be the same concentration as having 10 micrograms per liter in your water. 
What are some of the symptoms of that toxicity? The first thing that comes out at lower levels would be skin problems like blotches on, on the skin, on the hands and the feet. As you consume more arsenic over a, a longer period of time, it can lead to all different sorts of, of cancers, not, not just skin cancer, but internal cancers. Also cardiopulmonary problems, and which also makes this a bit problematic to diagnose. The skin problems, those blotches, you can relate that better to arsenic. But then if it comes to heart problems or some kind of cancer, it could be due to other environmental problems too. What were you trying to do with this study? What kind of questions were you trying to answer? Really just trying to find what the total distribution of arsenic contamination is. Again, because it's not tested for everywhere. And with this modeling technique, we are not just extrapolating or interpolating the data, but rather finding statistical relationships with other data that predict the occurrence of high levels of arsenic. And with that, are able to basically cover many different environments around the world with our known concentrations of arsenic. And with those statistical relationships coming out of the model, being able to map out a probability a prediction of high arsenic for the whole world. In the paper, it says you have 50,000 data points that you incorporated into this study. Can you talk about what those data points were? Well, the main things we need to do this modeling are the geographical coordinates and concentration. Well, they come from all around the world. You know, they're more concentrated in some areas than in others, just by nature of who collects data and who makes them available. That's the other issue. It's not all data that have been collected are publicly available or easily acquired. So this means that we have a lot of data from the U.S., which does a really good job of publicly sharing data, and a lot from well, Europe is a similar situation. Not all countries, but, but many. And then there are some of these arsenic hotspots where a lot of studies have been made. So Argentina, as an example, Bangladesh, India, Cambodia, China, Vietnam. So there are a lot, a lot of people have done a lot of studies there. So we have a lot of data from those places. And then in between as well. Fewer from Africa, though. That, it's often kind of a data poor area, but in this case, that's true too. We have some points, but not as many as um, Southeast Asia, for example. Okay. On top of that, on top of having these measurements and their locations on the surface of the earth, you also use geo-environmental parameters to help you model where levels of arsenic might be high. Which one of those parameters or which ones turned out to be important for making it an accurate map? In the end, we uh, settled on 11 variables. And so about half of those were climate variables, and they proved all to be significant in the modeling. This ultimately goes back to where groundwater accumulates, relates to the, the geochemical conditions. You know, if it's reducing or oxidizing, you know, how much it rains and how hot it is and how much evaporates. From the soil side, we have three parameters. So the clay content of the soil, the, the sand content of the soil uh, relates to how well water can infiltrate. And the other one is a, a soil classification known as fluvisols. And this is really quite good. So actually, the most important aspect of it is that it relates to recently deposited sediments. In general, when looking at natural areas of arsenic contamination, we like to look for Holocene sediments, so sediments from the past 10,000 years. And that's because the minute amounts of arsenic contained in the grains of the aquifer have not yet had a chance to leach out that arsenic in the past 10,000 years. Whereas if the grains are older, if it's an older formation, then most likely that arsenic has already been leached out before hmm. modern humans were around. 
what were you able to show using this new view of arsenic threat? How does it change our understanding of where people are in danger from arsenic? Well, it, first of all, it highlights known areas, so that's good. It does bring to light some areas where we don't have any measurements from yet, particularly in Central Asia. So Kazakhstan, Mongolia come up with a lot of potential hotspots, Uzbekistan as well. The whole Sahel zone just south of the Sahara in Africa also comes up as a potentially affected area, but not as strongly as Central Asia. But the whole point of the map is to not say definitively that these areas are affected and those are not. In the end, you always have to go and test the wells there. But it's really useful for guiding where to test. You can use this sort of a map to indicate where we should go with our limited testing resources and identify wells that people have been drinking from or maybe, you know, new wells to it to say we should test in these areas, see if there's arsenic in it, because by our senses alone, we'll never detect it. What can you do if there's arsenic in the water from a well? There are a couple of different things. So the, the main one, the ideal solution is to stop using that well and go to another one. The arsenic contamination is, is often very localized. It changes pretty quickly on a, a small spatial scale. Let's take a small village, for example, that has several different wells in it. It's a very good chance that not that if there is arsenic contamination there, that not every well is affected. It could also be that if you have one well, you have two wells next to one another, one that's shallower has high arsenic concentrations and one that taps groundwater from a greater depth does not have the arsenic contamination. And for some of the areas in Asia in particular that are highly affected by arsenic, this is often a great solution. If that doesn't work, you can filter the arsenic out of the water, but it's, it's costly. It's not 100% effective. There are maintenance issues. So well switching is by far the, the better solution. Somewhere between 94 million and 220 million people are at risk of arsenic exposure from their water. A huge majority of them in Asia. Is that something that you knew going into this paper? Yes, that's not stunning, actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, because I mean, I'm stunned, but yeah. <laughs> but if you're familiar with the area, then no, it's the hot spots a lot in South and Southeast, Southeast Asia where you have a lot of people living. And the other thing that's going on there, why those areas happen to be so strongly affected, is that you have the Himalayas and some other very recent still growing mountain ranges. And so it's a high rate of erosion and deposition coming off those mountains. So you have these great big, thick Holocene sequences out in the plains where people live and farm and all that. And that has the arsenic in the grains still. Not that the, the source rocks in the Himalayas are particularly high in arsenic. They have basically an average amount of arsenic in them. But it's all that high level of erosion, you know, the recent exposure to the environment as these mountains are, are being pushed upward has led to all this uh, arsenic in the sediments in the, the, the plains washing out of those mountains. Okay. Joel Podgorski is a senior scientist in the Water Resources and Drinking Water Department at the Swiss Federal Institute of Aquatic Science and Technology. You can find a link to his paper and a related commentary piece at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you will find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. 
And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.